Mrs. Palmer was so well at the end of a fortnight that her mother felt it no longer necessary to give up the whole of her time to her. And contenting herself... I'm Ellen. And I'm Harriet. And this is Reading Jane Austen. This week we're looking at chapters 37 to 41 of Sense and Sensibility. Do you have a hundred word summary? Yes, I do. Mrs Jennings passes on the gossip that Anne has told Fanny about Lucy and Edward. Fanny throws Anne and Lucy out, and when Mrs Ferrers can't convince Edward to break the engagement, she dismisses him and settles her Norfolk property on Robert. Colonel Brandon has a living to offer Edward and asks Eleanor to tell him about it. Eleanor and Marianne will be leaving London shortly to spend some time with the Palmers before returning home. Before they leave, Eleanor pays a courtesy call on John and Fanny. Marianne and Mrs Jennings don't go with her. So, that was mine. All right, well, this is mine, which has got some different emphases anyway. Eleanor hears from Mrs Jennings that Fanny Dashwood has been told of Edward's engagement to Lucy, and Eleanor warns Marianne, who is overcome with shame. Their brother arrives with the news that Mrs Ferrers has disinherited Edward and settled an estate on Robert. Eleanor receives conflicting accounts from the Miss Steeles of the meeting between Edward and Lucy. The Dashwood sisters make arrangements for returning home, first travelling with the Palmers to Cleveland. Colonel Brandon asks Eleanor to pass on to Edward an offer of the recently vacated living at Delaford. John Dashwood is amazed at Colonel Brandon's financial naivety. Which has got a lot of different bits in. Yes, it does. But I think we've pretty much covered all the main scenes. Just one comment to start with, which is that this set of chapters are where Volume 3 began in the original publication. So Volume 2 finished with Colonel Brandon's story. Where did Volume 1 end? With Lucy talking to Eleanor. Oh, right. So both volumes finished with a big piece of information, a big mystery solved. Yes, yes. But this one is beginning with a mystery solved. This isn't moving on to a mystery solved because we, the reader, have known this since the start of Volume 2. Yes, that's right. My original first comment I wanted to make was the sort of way this piece of news, which is going to be a very significant point in the plot, is introduced when not told by Jane Austen that Anne Steele revealed this to Fanny. We're given it in this really funny comic dialogue of Mrs Jennings turning up. Is it comic dialogue or is it comic monologue? I did a word count. It's over 800 words she speaks without stopping. (laughs) It is a comic monologue. Well, so much of this, which is really quite serious, Mm. is being put into funny passages. And then I felt that she tried to do something the same again, which I think didn't really work in these chapters. That bit where Mrs Jennings misunderstands. Oh, I find that painfully unfunny. Well, that's what I've written down. I've just said it is so unfunny. And it goes on for so... It feels like it goes on for so long. It actually doesn't. (laughs) No, it's quite short. You have the short segment where Mrs Jennings thinks what's happening. Then you have the segment where you learn what's really happening. And then you have that very painful scene where she and Eleanor are talking at cross purposes. Well, anyway, and when she goes away before it's sorted out. Yeah. But on the other hand, Mrs Jennings telling what's happened with Lucy and Anne is just gorgeous, I mm. think. 
It is sort of beautifully done. Yes. And the bit about the pimples and the red gum. <laughs> yes. And, and all that detail. The other one where she does the same thing again, a bit later on, where she does the balance of the two Miss Steele's account of Edward and Lucy mm. talking it through where mm. they're contradictory. Mm. But also Anne Steele giving that account is something I find very, very enjoyable somehow. Mm. One of the things I loved was the picture it suddenly gives you of the two Steele's relationship with one another, that they're so tight and they support one another, but they're mean to one another. Yeah. They listen to one another, how Lucy used to listen when Anne Steele had someone she had secrets with. It's one of those ones that gives you so much more extra information than just a comic dialogue, mm. that you're taken deep into the relationship of the two Steele's. Mm. And also it's kind of lovely that the last line in that exchange between Eleanor and Anne is Anne saying, I see you wearing your spotted muslin. Well, again, that business of Anne Steele's obsession with the Dashwoods' clothes. Mm. There's an earlier piece where she knows more than Marianne how many dresses Marianne's got. The other thing I felt in these chapters compared to the ones we read last time, the ones we read last time were this just series of wonderful wonderful mostly comic scenes not much actual plot happening in this set of chapters we have big plot stuff happening there's still quite a lot of scenes fewer of them comic and so somehow it wasn't as enjoyable to read through and like I said I hated Mrs Jennings and Eleanor talking at cross purposes yes, yes but I still found Whenever John Dashwood came in, his scenes were still just so funny because he is so completely cluelessly out of touch with what Eleanor thinks. The other thing I thought was really significant was the clarification between Eleanor and Marianne. And there again, you've got a complete change of tone Mm. because there you've suddenly moved back into the cautionary tale. Mm. We're away from the comic characters. We're away from the two romantic plots and we're back there where who's doing the right thing? And this is where I get cross with Eleanor Mm. because she's being so sort of finger-wagging it. Marianne says to her, How have you been supported? And she says, by feeling that I was doing my duty. My promise to Lucy obliged me to be secret. I owed it to her, which, you know, I've never really believed that was the whole reason. I owed it to her, therefore, to avoid giving any hint of the truth. And I owed it to my family and friends not to create in them a solicitude about me which it could not be in my power to satisfy. And these are the bits about Eleanor that, as I've been doing this really close reading, have sort of stopped me admiring Eleanor as much as I used to. I think those are just poorly written on Jane Austen's part. Again, the immaturity of it. She's maybe putting too much into Eleanor's words what we should be interpreting ourselves The way sometimes when they do film adaptations, they make characters say things because they think the audience won't work it out otherwise. Yes. And I think that's an example of Jane Austen doing it. Well, for me, it's part of, you know, what I see is the sort of enormously fussy structure of the book where you've got the Eleanor plot and the Marianne plots intertwining. Yeah. And then bang on top of them, you've got this cautionary tale which says this one did the wrong thing. And she has been punished by the universe for it. And I think it's not just something that belongs in this part of the book. Mm. It's just part of the over-fussy, elaborate structure of the book. 
I just wanted to read out a couple of extracts from Robert Rohde's book, The Bitch in the Bonnet, when he's talking about this, this scene between Eleanor and Marianne just after Marianne has learned the truth. And he says, What follows is the emotional core of the novel, as Marianne learns to her astonishment that all the while Eleanor was comforting her over Willoughby, she was suffering a heartache just as piercing. Which kind of, you're taking it as the structural morality of the story, he's taking it as the emotional core, which I think is an interesting different approach to the same thing. I can see what he's saying, but I also love the point he makes that again goes sort of against what you were saying. Yes. Which is, this dramatic encounter, however, ends on a comic note. Austin is above all the social satirist. Marianne feels such a burden of guilt for having exulted in her grief while Eleanor was forced to hide hers that Eleanor has to comfort her again. And then later on, and I'd also highlighted this myself, after the scene with John, when Marianne has just managed to control herself, yeah. it says that Marianne felt all the force of that comparison as in the comparison with Eleanor, but not as her sister had hoped to urge yeah. her to exertion now. She felt it with all the pain of continual self-reproach, regretted most bitterly that she had never exerted herself before, but it brought only the torture of penitence without hope of amendment. I think, as we've said before, this is Marianne coming off the page very much as a living, breathing person. But it's also, as he said, it's kind of funny that even when she's going through this emotional revelation, she's still not exactly making life any easier for Eleanor. It's not something she's yet registered she ought to be trying to yeah. do. And I think, again, that you can almost see that as a youthful thing. Yeah, It is still emotion. If I feel it, I have to talk about it. Yeah. There are two other big non-comic scenes in these chapters that I'd like to talk about a bit. The first one is Colonel Brandon asking Eleanor to tell Edward that he's got a living to offer. How believable is this? It's one of those things, maybe like Mrs Dashwood's not telling Marianne to come home, the plot requires it so that you can get Eleanor and Edward in a room talking to each other. Yes. But is it clumsy or is it, is it believable? Colonel Brandon does say he's only met Edward three or four times. Yeah. So maybe it makes sense for him not to want to offer it himself, but it seems odd to me that he'd tell Eleanor to do it and he wouldn't even be there. Surely it's his job. Mm. Unless, of course, this was something that we're not as aware of, where a lot of the time the women were asked to do these little delicate actions. Somebody read an article saying that an awful lot of the things that women did in these societies was all the things that it was a bit hard for the men to do. They kept up the relationships that were necessary. And that's why they were always visiting one another, making sure there was someone there. They were the ones who could drop hints. And it could be part of a pattern, but it's not one we see in Jane Austen very often. No. And this is the second time Colonel Brandon has asked Eleanor to be the messenger because yeah. he told her everything about Eliza and then said... And, and I leave it, and you go and tell Marianne. And but that that made more sense. Yeah, that did make more sense. And then, when you think about it, there's actually in this book four times where Eleanor receives big pieces of information because there's these two from Colonel Brandon where he's genuinely asking her to be the messenger. Early on, there was Lucy sharing her secret, which then, had completely different motivation. And then you have Willoughby. Willoughby. Yes, so Ella, it's like everyone is coming to tell Eleanor stuff. Yes, well, after all, she is the narrator. <laughs> it's from her point of view we're seeing. <laughs> and the other scene, to be honest, I'm probably going to talk about this 
in more detail when I look at how the pop culture virgins treat it, but it's the scene between Edward and Eleanor. And I think it's what is so beautiful about this scene. They don't ever say anything that's improper. And a lo- look, a lot of the scene, again, disappointingly, isn't in dialogue. Yes. And that's kind of often happens in Jane Austen with these more emotional scenes, even when it's undercurrent like yes. this. She doesn't always give us the dialogue, but what she does give us... I do think it is quite a powerful scene for what's not said, but we know we know there's all this emotion underneath, yes. but we also see that they are behaving so impeccably and we can tell how difficult it is for both of them. Oh, this is something I should have said earlier when we were talking about Mrs Jennings, but yes. when she's describing what went down when Anne told about Lucy, it reads like something from the juvenilia. She says, Nancy, she fell upon her knees and cried bitterly, and your brother, he walked about the room and said he did not know what to do. Mrs. Dashwood declared they should not stay a minute longer in the house, and your brother was forced to go down upon his knees too to persuade her to let them stay until they had packed up their clothes. Poor Lucy in such a condition, he says she could hardly walk, and Nancy, she was almost as bad. It's so exaggerated, like it's from the juvenilia. I've seen online a lot of people get very confused as to why... Mrs. Jennings keeps calling Anne Nancy. It's just a standard... It's like Elizabeth and Lizzie, isn't it? It's just a standard... Yes, well, it's different. one of those things where people often put the N in front of it. I mean, Edward turns into Ned. Yeah. Anne turns into Nan. It's just one of those things that happens in English. Mm. One last thing, and it will be the last thing. You know how I talked last time about how there are some of those little moments that are just so real and so believable, one of which was... Eleanor trying to pick the shortest queue and hoping that the other person will be finished quicker because he saw someone waiting. There's this one from Marianne. Marianne found some relief in drawing up a statement of the hours that were yet to divide her from Barton. Again, she's so young. I tend to think of it particularly as girls in boarding schools. Yes. It's a bit like The Secret Treasures in Emma with Harriet Smith having them. It's so early. Yeah. One knows later this is something girls are always doing. But nobody had had that happening before. Yeah. It's just us picking up. This is the sort of thing people have been doing a lot longer than we assume. Yeah, I I think that's just it. You feel that this is something that people do now, but no, people did it then too. People have always... Yes. So what was your favourite sentence? Well, my favourite sentence picks up a little bit on something you were saying about the way Mrs Jennings is telling that story. And the thing that... I got particularly taken with it is that Mrs Jennings is starting to talk in the way of the sort of person telling a folk tale, telling a fairy story Mm -hmm. and at different stages when they were taking down ancient folk tales they took down the actual words of people Mm -hmm. and Mrs Jennings telling that story is so completely like that and this is the sentence and it's truly just a sentence Lord, thinks she to herself, this is Anne, they are all so fond of Lucy to be sure they will make no difficulty about it. And so away she went to your sister, this bit I love, who was sitting all alone at her carpet work. And I think of it's like the Lady of Shalott (laughs) or Penelope in the Odyssey, little suspecting what was to come. For she had just been saying to your brother only five minutes before that she thought to make a match between Edward and some lord's daughter or other, I forget who. But I just like it because it's so out of the Jane Austen style and she Mm. does it so beautifully. Mm. This is your classic fairy story telling. (laughs) 
I ended up highlighting a huge number of sentences to have as my favourite sentence and all of them, when I look at it, or almost all of them, tie in with that thing you were saying about Lady Middleton thinking Eleanor and Marianne are satirical yes. because this is all either Eleanor thinking or saying something satirical or else the author saying something satirical on behalf, on of, behalf of Eleanor. There are so many to choose from, but I think the one I'll go with is... So this is in the conversation between Eleanor and John when John has just learned that Colonel Brandon has offered the living to Edward and hasn't told Fanny yet. Yes. And it says, Eleanor had some difficulty here to refrain from observing that she thought Fanny might have borne with composure an acquisition of wealth to her brother by which neither she nor her child could possibly be impoverished. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think actually as we've moved through the book, we're seeing more and more satirical snarky comments from Eleanor they were originally just directed in her battle of wits with Lucy yes but then as there's been more direct dialogue with John because of course in those early scenes at Norland there was no direct dialogue yes. with John but as we've had this dialogue with John and even more so with Robert Ferrers yes I guess it kind of fits in with something you've said about sometimes you get a bit offside with Eleanor because she she can be a bit hard a bit nasty only when she says it out loud it's nice that this is the way she comforts herself mm. i guess what it is is she's placing herself in an intellectually superior position to these other people yes so with lucy she's actually kind of mostly not she knows lucy knows what she's saying and <laughs> yes lucy knows she knows what she's saying but when she's talking to robert and when she's talking to john yeah and when she's talking to anne she does actually say some of these things out loud that we, the reader, are kind of laughing at, and she's being kind of snarky, but she's saying them out loud because she is quite confident that she's more intelligent than the other person, which is kind of intellectual snobbery. It's also there in that one where she agreed with everything Robert said because she didn't think he deserved the compliment. Of rational opposition. Rational opposition. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about Edward today. I might actually quote here from back in 1952, Marvin Mudrick wrote a book called Jane Austen, Irony's Defence and Discovery, which is old, but I think does sum up what was thought at that time. What was thought at the time, probably what is still thought today about Edward when he says, whatever Edward says or does makes him seem very damp company. <laughs> <laughs> and as I said before, I think that's a little unfair because when Edward has those scenes at Barton Cottage, you can see him engaging in conversation saying quietly humorous things and you know I, th I think that's one of the things that we've come to this conclusion that if you start to feel that about Edward then if you read the book in detail as we've been doing mm. you come up with another picture of Edward yep. because is Edward in fact the most absent of all Jane Austen's heroes because there are 50 chapters in this book Edward is present in 11 of those chapters and a paragraph at the beginning of one chapter and of those 11 chapters in three of them he has no dialogue at all yes and then even in some of his major scenes like the one with Eleanor and Lucy and the one where Eleanor tells him about the living he only has a handful of lines those scenes are delivered a small part through dialogue and a larger part through description so really the only times we properly hear him engaging is in the two or three chapters when he's visiting at Barton Cottage, and then in chapter 49, 
where he has these massive monologue info dumps about everything in his past, (laughs) which again is not perhaps the most riveting thing in the world to read. So I think that's why he comes across as, well, like Mudrick said, as damp company, because he's either not there at all. Even Darcy, who's off stage a lot, he's on stage an awful lot more than Edward is. Oh, well, I mean, the other thing with Darcy is we hear what he's thinking, unlike Edward. If Marianne comes alive more than anyone else in this book, Edward comes alive less than any other Jane Austen hero because he's not there, and when he is there, he mostly doesn't talk. The only time he really comes alive is those chapters in Barton, and in those chapters, if you look at them closely, you can see he's got a sense of humour, you can see he's interesting to talk to, but those three chapters are so overwhelmed by his absence from everywhere else and the fact that He's very awkward, he's very shy, and so he does potentially come across as very boring because it's so easy to forget those three chapters. Of course, with those three chapters, you were talking about how self-centred he seems to be. Well, not really self-centred, just wanting people to notice him. He only ever gets much of a chance to talk about himself, doesn't he? (laughs) I know, but he talks nicely about Marianne. I suppose one of the things that has struck me right at the beginning with Edward, though, is that his secret engagement and turning up and obviously, if not courting Eleanor, at least building up that relationship. And yet he's never criticised for it. Later on, Eleanor keeps saying, I don't blame him, I don't blame anything he did. And then if you move on to Emma, and you've got what Emma says about uh, yes. Frank Churchill yes. and how outrageous it was. Well, yes, actually, you're right, because Edward does actually blame himself at the end and Eleanor says, there, there, it doesn't matter. His argument is that this is my problem, but I'm not hurting anyone else. Frank Churchill, he also says, I was sure there was no danger of you falling in love with me. And everyone, you're right, is very critical of Frank Churchill because they are so afraid that he could have made Emma fall in love with him. And nobody criticises Edward for this except himself just a tiny bit at the end. Yes. I think, though, Frank Churchill is consciously flirting with Emma to hide his relationship with Jane Fairfax. And that, I think, is more reprehensible than what Edward does, which is Edward thinks he is in the friend zone with Eleanor. Yes. And, in fact, he's not, and he hasn't recognised that the way he is behaving with Eleanor is not appropriate. And that is something he should be censured for and Eleanor doesn't and the author doesn't and nobody else does. And yet he obviously knows by the time at least he turns up at Barton that Eleanor has fallen in love with him. I suppose my reading of Edward's behaviour, and yeah, it's not clear from the book, so this is just my interpretation and maybe being too charitable, is when he came to visit them at Barton, he did not realise how much Eleanor cared for him. Because he's described as modest and blah, 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 at that stage he just thought she was the person he liked being with the most and he didn't realise how much she cared about him. Because after all, when they're in London, he goes out of his way not to see them. He's never there. They're having all these connections with the family and he's always not there. Well, possibly because Lucy might be around. Yeah, but when they first get to London, Lucy isn't there yet. So when did he get this realisation? Was it Mrs Jennings and Sir John? The way they teased Eleanor when he was in Barton, was that what made him realise? Well, after all, you've got the bit that he has to leave after a week. No, he doesn't have anything else to do, but he still has to leave. So Maybe it, that's... It may have been that he thought he could stay there a lot longer. 
and then came to the conclusion. But that almost makes sense yeah. on a timeline. Yeah. That he has realised that there, that there are expectations. It's one of those things, like with Willoughby and Marianne, we don't know if Jane Austen has actually worked it out in her head or not because there's yes. not enough clues. So, yes. so you can make a story like I just have that that's his timeline and that's why he never sees them in London because he realises both for his own peace of mind and for Eleanor's peace of mind he shouldn't. Or, 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 or you... out of his loyalty to Lucy yeah. because he's still yeah. feeling very loyal to yeah. Lucy. It's not peace of mind, it's the honourable thing to do. Yeah. Or you could say when he came to visit them at Barton, he knew how Eleanor felt about him, but he came anyway, which is extremely reprehensible. Yes, and now I've now talked myself into believing (laughs) that he knew he was attracted to her, but didn't think it was reciprocated. And then the way that Margaret and Mrs Jennings and Sir John went on at him. Mm. And so having intended to stay a bit longer, he goes after a week. Yep. And she could have had him say that there Mm. if she'd bothered. Yes. (laughs) And she didn't. Yeah. And even with that backstory, I agree with you, he probably should have been censured a little bit more by Eleanor or the author or someone. Yes. Because it is inconsistent with the presentation of Frank Churchill. But I do think the parallels are not quite exact and I do think the knowingness of Frank Churchill's flirting with Emma deliberately to hide Jane Fairfax is worse. Yes, The other thing I wanted to talk about was why did he want to be a clergyman? What was it about being a clergyman? And I was just thinking, look, he could have been very religious. There were two ways of being religious at that time. If you were down the the evangelical Methodist one, where the sort of pressure was on you to testify. But if, in fact... He belonged to the oldest style of Anglicanism. Which is where Jane Austen... Which sat. where Jane Austen was, which eventually or possibly turned into the high Anglicanism and their view tended to be for reserve. You don't talk about your religious feelings. And after all, Eleanor and Edward are poster children for reserve. Yes, but also when you look at the fact that prayers written by Jane Austen survived, which means she must have written a lot more and those were seen as the best of them. Mm. Which does suggest that even though she has so many comic or unsympathetic clergymen in her books and no clergyman who she really presents as being deeply religious. But actually it would be possible that she's assuming Edward really is drawn to it. He's serious. And I started just comparing him a little bit with someone almost the same age, which was John Keeble, who became one of the leading lights of the Tractarian High Church movement. And just reading in the the only biography I've got of him about the stage when he was being ordained. And he wrote, know how terribly significant the ordination was going to be to him. Mm. The one thing I suppose that you feel with Edward is that he had no training. You know, nobody thought he needed any. But wasn't that how it worked? You had a degree, you weren't a Catholic, therefore you could become a clergyman? Oh, oh it, it was the way it worked. But even so, most of them expected to spend a bit of time as a curate mm. working under somebody else. Mm. But I'll talk about that anyway when I talk a bit more about the clergy. 
So a few weeks ago, we were introduced to the book Jane Austen, The Secret Radical by Helena Kelly. And so we talked about what she had to say about Colonel Brandon and why we disagreed with it. So now I think it's the time to talk about what she had to say about Edward and why we disagreed with that. She's got a general criticism that I felt was, you know, quite inappropriate. She says, he's just like Willoughby. She's trying to say they're all like Willoughby. She says, Edward won't take the blame for anything. Edward blames everybody else. She compares him to Willoughby by saying that it's a tendency Edward shares with Willoughby, this ability to always find someone to blame. It's not the only similarity between the two characters, in spite of their apparent positioning as opposites. Both have financially independent female relations who attempt to use money to control their behaviour. Both encourage one of the Dashwood sisters to believe they are interested in marrying them, and Jane makes a point of showing that it isn't just Marianne and Eleanor who are misled, but almost everyone who observes the two couples together. It's arguable as to which man behaves worse in this regard. I think her perspective of behaving badly to Eleanor is certainly one you can take. We've taken a slightly different angle, but yeah, we can't actually disagree with her on that point. But when you're talking about the reaction to the financially independent female relations, after all, when the female relation lays down an ultimatum in both cases Edward and Willoughby refused to bow to the ultimatum they both of them got commitment to a girl yeah. one's a dashwood one's a steel yeah but one of them then abandons it for the money yeah the other one feels him a stick by it actually if you're looking at the parallel they've both got a commitment to a non-dashwood girl yes then they've got a subsequent commitment to a dashwood girl then when the female relative lays down an ultimatum, Edward sticks by his first commitment, acknowledging that the second commitment was one he shouldn't have made. Yes. Willoughby abandons both commitments and goes after the money. Yes. And I think that is the biggest difference between them. We agree to a greater or lesser extent Edward was wrong in his behaviour to Eleanor, but that's because he's not going to abandon his commitment to Lucy. Willoughby was not necessarily wrong in his early behaviour to Marianne, only because he had already abandoned his commitment to the girl before. Yes, but then the other thing you can say with Edward is also he uses this as another opportunity to stand up to his mother again. She has been stopping him doing what he wants to do, which is to be a clergyman. Hmm. And now this is the opportunity he can say, right, I'm saying no to you, and I will do what I've always wanted to do. Mm. And so those are basically different interpretations of Edward's background. And as we've said before, these are made up characters. They're not real. So we can make up our backstory for them in whatever way we want that has ideally some support from the text, but at least isn't negated by the text. And the common pop term for this is headcanon. I've made it up in my head and to me it's canon. So my headcanon with Edward is I've made up a story where he is culpable but not as culpable. Helena Kelly sees him as extraordinarily culpable. When we were talking about Helena Kelly before, I included in the show notes, but we didn't talk about it because we didn't discover it till later, a critique on a website by Lona Manning. And she criticised this habit Kelly has of picking up on a small thing and magnifying its importance. And there's an example of her doing this in her discussion of Edward. We did talk about it and why we disagree with Kelly, but it all got a bit lengthy and complicated. So I ended up editing it out, but I'll put some points together for the show notes. So I guess I would sum up my position on Edward as saying 
He is so absent in the book, I think that we have an incomplete presentation of him by Jane Austen in a way that we don't have with any of the heroes in other books. Yes. I think he absolutely deserves some level of censure for allowing Eleanor to fall in love with him. The degree of censure, I think, is dependent on the individual reading of the book because he is so little presented that we have to resort to speculation. But we also have to take into account that neither Eleanor or Jane Austen blame him for it. (laughs) Yes. I think there is justification for taking issue with Eleanor and Jane Austen for not blaming him. So at the end of the day, I quite like him. Oh, well, I quite like him. Yes. So what I'm going to be talking about today is what is meant in the background to these chapters when they talk about the presentation of a living. Which you talked about at one point when we were doing Pride and Prejudice. Yes. But this is going to be a slightly different angle. But, well, this is going to come at it from a slightly different angle. And I still have to apologise that I haven't got particularly good knowledge on this because it's such a complicated subject. But this is what I've put together from what I think is true at the period when Jane Austen was living. Practically all clergymen in Church of England parishes at that period, if they were made a rector or a vicar, had a set income. And if they were appointed as a rector, which is what is appropriate for this particular chapter, because Colonel Brandon says he is offering him the rectory. So a clergyman who was a rector had an income which he could get probably from land but possibly from investments that belonged to the church. In this case it's probably land because there's talk of it being able to be improved. Yes, anyone who like Edward was appointed as rector to a parish had a set source of income which if he wanted to let it for a good price or if he wanted to farm it himself, he could make his own living. But to be made a rector, you had to be presented to it and the presentation of the living, which was the presentation of saying, right, there you are, you're the clergyman, this is your property, live on it, in effect, like a landed gentleman or draw your income from it. Various people could have the presentation of the living. It went back to medieval times. A lot of them had been presented, say, by monasteries. And then at the time of the end of the monasteries, the people who took over monastic land had it. But it was also probably, and I'm not really sure on this, the people who had given the land to the parish. Then he possibly had the right to do this. In Jane Austen's time, this became simply a very nice piece of patronage. If he had a son who wanted to be a clergyman or a nephew or somebody whose political support he wanted, he could present the living to a member of that family. You know, and there was a terrible lot of, you know, really inappropriate people being appointed. I mean, the ones they called squarsons, where they basically lived like a country gentleman. Others who never went near the place, they'd take away their £800 a year and pay a curate uh, £50 to take the services. So there were all sorts of ways, but there were also obviously various fairly deeply committed religious men who wanted to be clergy. 
And then you also have this situation where if you didn't have someone you wanted, you've got this perfectly good income, so you sell it for a certain amount in Mansfield Park. Mansfield was actually bought by Dr Grant. So it had been sold to Dr Grant, but then when he died, he couldn't leave it to someone else. The presentation reverted to Sir Thomas, who could then give it to Edmund. Which he did, yes. (laughs) Though there was something interesting in the footnotes of my Cambridge edition that I hadn't been aware of before. What's that? Which is that where John makes the passing comment about it being too late to sell it. It says that as a case of simony, that is to say traffic in sacred things, it was illegal to sell a living after the incumbent's death, but legal to sell as a promise before that event. The value of a living was often advertised in the newspaper with remarks on the age and health of the present incumbent, which Uh, which is why it's too late for Colonel Brandon to sell it now because the incumbent has just died, but he could have sold it before then. But the other thing they could also do was when the incumbent died, they could ask somebody to hold the living for them and then to resign at the appropriate time. And that's what John Dashwood is saying, that this is what Colonel Brandon must be going to do. Yeah. But anyway, that was how people acquired a living. And Colonel Brandon's just had somebody die at Delaford and is now in the situation to find a new clergyman. And one can maybe assume that he didn't expect this person to die, which is why he's not been thinking about it till now, or maybe he just it's one of those things that was on his list of things to do, and he's only had Delaford for five years after all. Yes, and and then the other thing is um, it wasn't just if they died, they could also retire. Mm. I mean, that, that comes up a little bit in persuasion. Well, that was the first thing I was wanting to talk about, then the second thing is what did the clergyman do? Yep. And again, I think that it was up to him. As long as he got himself ordained, whatever happened there, as long as the, serv- as the services were held and he could pay anyone a tiny amount, he could pay a, a local private school owner like Mr Pratt, say, to do it, or he could hire curates, which Mrs Jennings is quite convinced that Edward is going to take a curacy, Mm. which means he goes to some rector or vicar who doesn't want to do all the work themselves and is passing it off, so he'll pay somebody £50 a year to do the job for him. So other than giving the sermons on a Sunday, beyond that, what sort of pastoral role did they have? What sort of community role did they have? What they had to do was... The services had to be held and people had to be baptised, married and buried. Somebody had to be there to do it, supposedly. Nobody ever really got at them if they weren't. Oh, and then they had to be there to call the bands. I mean, that's one of the things that Robert Ferris is laughing at the thought of Mm. his brother having to call the bands. But then, of course, if you're giving the regular services on a Sunday, you just tack that on at the end of a service. So that's not like an extra thing you're doing. (laughs) No, but it's one of the things. There has to be somebody there to do it. But otherwise, of course, the standard thing for the clergyman to do also was the pastoral one, was basically visiting the sick and the dying and giving them spiritual consolation. Mm -hmm. And if they tended to be evangelical, they would probably talk personally and so on. If they were very quiet, and this might have been Edward's one, the prayer book was full of prayers. 
that they could go and read them and they could also read them bits from the Bible and that sort of thing. So that was something that they did. And then there were sort of various other things were starting to happen because after all, the clergyman was intertwined with the parish, which was an administrative district. Yep. They looked after the poor, um, the magistrates were there. And if the clergyman was a busy person, he could more or less act. If not actually being a magistrate, he could act as a sort of welfare officer or something, telling people what to do. That comes up in Emma, you get it's a big account of what Mr Elton has to do. He really is engaged from morning to night. There is no end of people's coming to him on some pretense or other. The magistrates and the overseers, the overseers were the ones who looked after the poor rates, mm -hmm. or that was one of the things they did. And church wardens are always wanting his opinion. They seem not able to do anything without him. Upon my word, Mr E, I often say, rather you than I. <laughs> so a clergyman who was there was likely to be very much part of local government and that sort of thing. At this stage, or was it later, that education, parish schools, that sort of well, thing? Well, I was just going to say that this is exactly the moment when the church is taking over education. If, in fact, the book was set in the earlier period, what they would have been doing was setting up Sunday schools. And what Sunday schools did was primarily teach reading. I mean, what they expected them to read was the prayer book and the Bible. Mm. But they were definitely starting to introduce literacy. And then at about the time Sense and Sensibility was published, some leading people had been starting to set up schools, both in the Anglican and the nonconformist parishes. Well, that's the kind of thing that an active clergyman and an active landowner would be very involved in. And then, of course, the thing that, again, Mansfield Park is the place for this, but the thing that Henry Crawford thought, which was giving really good sermons. That was where the fashionable preachers came in as well? The fashionable preachers would find themselves a city church and they'd get lots of money and they'd have their charities and that sort of thing. Edward has a university degree. Yes. Presumably just in the classics. What does ordination involve? Is there any training beyond that university degree? Because as far as I can think, the only two clergymen in Jane Austen who have doctorates are Dr Grant in Mansfield Park and, of course, the Dr Davies, who Anne Steele is so interested in, yes. in Sense and Sensibility, all the others are just Mr. So what comes after the undergraduate degree they just have to find a bishop who is prepared to ordain them ordination is a religious service i don't know if it gets counted as a sacrament but mm -hmm. it's definitely a very significant one and gradually the bishops are starting to be a bit fussy about it so basically then to get ordained you had to have a university degree you had to not be a catholic look you couldn't would... have a university degree if you were a catholic True. yeah <laughs> You had to find a bishop. And then Dr Grant and Dr Davies, after their ordination, they might have got a theology degree or before their ordination. But, you know, they, they would have stayed on at the university and got, and got a higher degree. They would have got a doctorate. Okay. But then getting a living, as long as you could find a bishop who would ordain you, and at that stage there were some pretty shonky bishops as well, they were there and then they could accept a living. And mm -hmm. what they did after that was more or less up to them. Mm -hmm. Just one last thing I wanted to talk about. Yep. 
and that was the usage of, of the term vicar, which now is more or less used to mean any Anglican clergyman that has a parish, he's called a vicar. At that stage, a vicar was, he received a certain stipend. It was fixed, there was nothing anyone could do about it. So a rector and a vicar were very different people. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to call somebody what they now say as vicar, meaning a Church of England clergyman, people, and Jane Austen has this usage all the time, they said parson, mm-hmm. even though apparently parson did really mean rector. Mm-hmm. But it was the term they used for clergyman. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is the use of the word reverend. Up until the 1890s, nobody is ever called the Reverend Collins, the Reverend Ferris, the Reverend anything. They were either the Reverend Mr Ferris or the Reverend Edward Ferris. It just wasn't used. People, including me, have done searches through all sorts of 19th century novels and saying at no stage before the 1890s are you getting anyone referring to a clergyman as Reverend so-and-so or even the Reverend Collins, the Reverend Ferris. As with our last episode, a lot of the adaptations of these chapters of the book follow a fairly similar pattern. One thing you see in all of them that is different from the book is that, not altogether surprisingly, all of them show the scene with Fanny learning the truth. You don't have it told by Mrs Jennings. Well, yes. The degree of extreme reaction varies from... Well, I mean, again, this is one of these things. Do we really believe that it happened quite like that? Yes. But now just looking at a couple of differences, the 1971 version with Joanna David and Kieran Madden one thing that seemed rather odd is that when Eleanor is passing on the message from Colonel Brandon, she, I think, rather inappropriately visits Edward in his lodging. And yes. his lodgings also seem a bit more down market than I think maybe is really right. That was probably the only thing I particularly wanted to comment on with the 1971 version. The 1981 version with Irene Richard and Tracy Childs, there's quite a nice moment in that where... In the scene where John has come to tell Eleanor and Marianne about how badly Fanny has been treated and what a loving mother Mrs. Ferrers is, they actually do talk back to him. And the episode ends with them walking out on him, sort of arms round each other's waist. They just walk (laughs) out the door, leaving him totally not understanding their point of view. What is that about? Yes. Which I thought was quite nice. The 1995 version with Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet... Even though they dramatise the scene between... In this case, it's Lucy telling the truth to Fanny because Anne, of course, has been completely cut from this version of the story. Even though they dramatise that, they still capture the Mrs Jennings delivering the news story because they have this scene of Mrs Jennings running through the street to tell the gossip to to everyone else, which I thought was quite nice. In the scene between Eleanor and Marianne, Eleanor is somewhat emotional but... Really, when she's talking to Marianne, a lot of the language is from the book, though not all of it. Some has been written by Emma Thompson. But you really see her letting out some of her repressed anger and hurt and frustration over everything that's been going on over the past weeks. But then it goes back to how it was in the book because Marianne is devastated by it and starts crying and Eleanor has to comfort Marianne. Yes. In the scene between Eleanor and Edward, 
I think this is one of the scenes that really made this version work for me at an emotional level and one of the things I think Ang Lee as a director really brought to it because in some of the other adaptations that scene just really builds up the emotion in this one most of the scene is delivered they're sitting in their chairs they're quite close to each other they're not touching each other and there's all this undercurrent of emotion but it's not played out in the dialogue it's played out in the acting and the directing and the body language they're so close but they can't touch each other who is Edward in this one this is Hugh Grant as Edward all oh, right of course he is yes, yes. And so I do think it's, it's what the director brought to this as well as the actors. He brought it out in the actors. The, you don't need the dialogue because you can see that there yes. is so much emotion there. Another really interesting thing in this, and I came out in the commentary, and to be honest, embarrassingly, I hadn't actually noticed it. It's all one take. All and right. They did shoot close-ups and cuts and things like that, but when they sent it to the producer in America, he said the one-take version was the most emotional, and certainly it works so well. It's, yes. it's, I think, a really powerful scene. So what is included in that take? The framing is they're both sitting in chairs, they're quite close to each other. Neither of them is sitting back on the chair, both of them are sitting on the edge of the chair. Oh, right. And they're just having their dialogue, and there's no close-ups, and there's no cuts, it's just yes. one take. And the camera isn't zooming in or out, the camera's still as well. Yes. Probably the take does include him walking into the room and them sitting down, but most of it is they're yes. sitting there talking to each other. Yes. Then... 2008, the miniseries version with Hattie Morahan and Charity Wakefield, as with all of them, they dramatise the scene of Fanny finding out. And this one, again, has Anne in it, so it's Anne telling her. Yeah. But it then goes beyond that because Mrs Ferrers is in the room at the same time. And oh, right. just after it's all happened, then Edward and Lucy walk into the room. Oh, right. So as well as dramatising that scene, this version is unique in also dramatising the scene where Mrs Ferrers wants him to break it off with Lucy and he refuses. So and, and, but Lucy is actually... But Lucy the... is actually in the room at the time. I think maybe part of the reason they did that was to, again, give some strength of purpose to Edward's character because that's another scene that, that does present Edward in a good light standing up to his mother, but you never see it in the book. Yes. And they've decided... It does work to show it here. The scene between Eleanor and Edward. Yes. Well, for a start, Dan Stevens, who played Edward, he apparently had very bad tonsillitis that day. His throat was swollen up and everything. Oh, right. yeah. so, you know, acting under extreme difficulty. But they framed that quite differently from the 1995 version. The two of them were standing up. Yeah. They were at least 10 feet apart. So they had, whereas 1995 had them close, but they couldn't touch. Yeah. 2008 was a bit more obvious in having a lot more physical distance yes and also the additional dialogue 1995 had some additional dialogue yeah it had a lovely line about edward saying your friendship has been the most important of my life and eleanor saying you will always have it oh that is nice that is yeah. nice in 2008 the additional dialogue was things like i wouldn't think so highly of you if you had acted differently which just seemed a little bit more like we don't trust the actors to deliver it in body language. We don't trust the audience to interpret it. We have to state it, which it wasn't terrible, but compared to the 1995 version, I just felt it didn't work as well. And it wasn't all one take. It was close-up, close-up, close-up. And what they were trying there was they had close-ups in profile, so they were mirroring each other. But after the the stillness of 1995, because I watched them one after another last night, yes. it did seem a lot more busy. Yes. And a lot less effective as a result. 
So that's the adaptations. Now, with the modernizations, as I said a couple of episodes ago, one of the interesting things with the modernizations is looking at how they deal with things that are very 19th century. So, of course, one area of that is the Marianne Willoughby, Colonel Brandon and Eliza situation. And most of the modernizations dealt with that by totally ignoring the Eliza plot and (laughs) in some way, shape or form, incorporating the Willoughby betrays Marianne. But the Colonel Brandon connection with Willoughby is mostly just cut out. There's many and varied ways of dealing with the Edward Lucy Eleanor story in the modernization. Yes. I don't think any of them is spectacularly successful. Yeah. In the Bollywood version from 2000, there's an ongoing theme in that of the Eleanor character, whose name is Sumya, believing she is bad luck. Because before the movie began, she was engaged to someone and he died. And she just believes there's this bad luck yeah. um, context, which I suspect there may be cultural aspects of that that I'm just not getting. Yes. The backstory with the Edward character, Manohar, is that he wants to be a film director and his family is opposed to it. He's been very upfront in his relationship with Sumya and there's been no Lucy character before he met her. He then went off to make a movie and it just, everything went wrong. But then he started doing an action film with a well-known actress. And... That was more successful, but not necessarily doing the things that Sumya had suggested. And as part of the making of that film, the actress who was involved seemed to be interested in him and the press started presenting them as a couple. So he actually never wavered. When she turns up, I think you're meant to think, oh, is something going to happen here? Is it going to go wrong? But in fact, he never wavered from his commitment to Sumya. There was so no... it's almost a mirror it's image almost of, the... A mirror. of the book. So that was how they dealt with that. They had the characters in there, but the relationships were different. The Latin American version from Prada to Nada also had it completely differently. Again, Edward was totally interested in Nora right from the start. But then they have a scene where they're at a party together. Uh, I think they've had a heart-to-heart because she's somewhat or extremely drunk He kisses her and then she pulls back because getting involved with someone isn't part of her long-term plan. And so she then quits her job at his law firm and she opens a free legal aid service from her aunt's house. And the next he he turns up in it is they receive an invitation from Olivia, who's the Fanny character. She's been pushing her friend Lucy at Edward and they get an invitation to come to the Lucy and Edward engagement party. Nora and Edward talk and she explains that she always felt she can't count on personal relationships but that then all gets co-opted by the mary plot starting to to resurface so that's so again they deal with it quite differently also in 2011 the sense s-c-e-n-t-s and sensibility version is just plain silly i talked before about how it has this plot of marianne making this semi-magical lotion Lucy is a co-worker at the spa Eleanor works at and Fran, who's a spa owner, asks Lucy to break into Eleanor's locker and steal one of the lotions so Fran can get someone to reverse engineer it. And Lucy agrees, but only if Fran will set her up with Edward, who is Fran's brother. So again, Edward and Eleanor were interested in each other before any commitment to Lucy. And in fact, there was no commitment to Lucy at all. Just Fran and Lucy lied to Eleanor and to Edward and tried to separate them. And then there is 
Eleanor and Marianne Take Barton, the web series from 2014. I think I've said before, the backstory with that is that Lucy pursued Edward and for most of the series, they were publicly acknowledged as boyfriend-girlfriend. And Eleanor was just kind of out of the picture and Edward, at a point when Edward was clearly becoming more and more uncomfortable with their relationship and possibly wanting to actually break it off but not sure how, Lucy suddenly told him that the leukemia she had as a child had come back. And of course, he feels honour-bound and committed to stay with her because she's going through this terrible thing. Well, I mean, that's quite an interesting parallel to come up. It is quite a good way to get that sense of commitment to someone even though my feelings may be elsewhere. Yes. The problem with it is that it later comes out that... Lucy, in fact, did not have leukaemia. She was just saying that because she felt Edward was drifting away from her. There's been nothing to suggest of what you see on screen that she is not telling the truth, that she does, in fact, have leukaemia. Edward is looking terrible by then. He's not sleeping. He's failing his classes because he's so worried about her. Then when he's gone home, she tells Marianne that, in fact, it's not true. She made it all up. Then, of course, that's... That's a bit silly to do. yes. On camera yet, and that's how it get, gets back to Edward, and they break up. Just the way she tells Marianne about it, it's like it doesn't make sense with her personality. But then, right at the end, after Edward has broken off with her because of that, there's one last scene with her talking to Eleanor where she's, instead of being out there and confident like she's been all the way through, she is looking really broken. And what she basically says to Eleanor is, I never really fitted in all that well at school and I wanted to be different when I came to university, which is why I pursued Edward and was so determined to have a relationship and be friends with people and everyone. And then when it felt it was going wrong, it seemed like the only time I'd fitted in when I was at school was when I had leukaemia. So that's why I did it, because I was so desperate to fit in again. And that was completely in opposition to everything you'd seen of her character up to there. And what it made me think of was in the Lizzie Bennet diaries, the character of Lydia was presented as initially very annoying and like Lydia in the book, but Mm. over the episodes you saw that underneath she was quite insecure and quite dependent on on her sisters. And that is what led into her getting involved in an emotionally abusive relationship with Wickham. So it was set up to lead to that relationship and you got it happening all the way through. In this, that reveal at the end came totally out of left field and I felt that it didn't work in the context of the story because there'd been no indication before then that she was, in fact, an insecure person. And moreover, I did find it very, very distasteful to use that as a plot point. Yes. The last of the modernizations that I've talked about before is the book by Joanna Trollope, the Austin Project one, and in that it sticks much more closely that he is engaged to her and he won't give her up, but it's just not as... Or she won't give him up. Well, it's a bit of both, but I, I suppose it works because Edward is the kind of person that won't abandon someone, but... Yes. Yeah. And I mentioned last time that I was going to look into seeing if I could find some modernization versions that were 
non-white or non-straight. Yeah. It turns out there are many, many, many of these for Pride and Prejudice and also <laughs> for a lot of the others. There actually aren't so many for Sense and Sensibility. Uh-huh. And the ones I have heard of, I haven't been able to get hold of yet. I'm still going to try and read them. I might talk about them briefly in later episodes. <laughs> yeah. listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me Harriet and me Ellen. In our next episode we'll be looking at chapters 42 to 46 of Sense and Sensibility. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website readingjaneaustin.com You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.